Gracious Father in heaven, you're so good to us. We thank you for your love and your mercy to us. As we focus today on these great uh, teachings of the Apostle Paul, we pray that our own hearts will be refreshed. In Jesus' name, amen. There's never a time when I study this that I don't, that I'm not recharged myself. Um, at the uh, center of everything is the gospel. Well, I left you yesterday with a thought about the very essence of the gospel. Anybody want to give me that back? Can you give me that back today? The very essence of the gospel. All right. Let me start it out. God sacrificed His own Son to His own justice and set us free. That's in contrast to the pagan concept that says you bring your sacrifice even if it's your own child. But God says you can't bring any sacrifice that can atone for your soul. So because you can't, I'll do it for you. And it's having faith in Him who does it for us is where and how the just shall live by faith. That's where we left yesterday, and I want to go back to Romans chapter 3 because there's some parts of that that I still want to take a look at. So if you've got your uh, lesson number 3, we will start looking, um, starting looking again at verse, that whole section of verse 21 to 26 is very, very powerful. I talked about propitiation. Propitiation is satisfying the justice of God. But that satisfaction is provided by God Himself instead of us having to try to provide that. Do you, do you think you could... You, you, the thing is you can never satisfy justice yourself. Why could you never satisfy God's justice? Well, that's true, but let's say that that the justice of God required your life so you could never satisfy God's justice and still live. No. In order to satisfy it, you have to die. And, and that's why... What's that? Yeah, that's right. So that's why Jesus satisfies it for us and so now we can live. Uh, what was the... Um, uh, let me see if I did any good yesterday. Um, righteousness is exhibited apart from the law. What kind of illustration I used to explain that? Anybody remember? Oxygen, remember that one? Yes. Oxygen is oxygen, is it not? Righteousness is righteousness. The righteousness of God never changes. But he has to express it different for a fish, or the fish will die. So what he did in Calvary's cross and in Christ, he expressed his righteousness differently. The method he used to express it is different, just like air and water. But in the water and the expression of Calvary's cross of God's righteousness, 
We don't die, we live. Isn't that good news? And so that's, uh, that's why this is so very, very important to us. It wasn't, some people use that, well, he expressed it apart from the law as though the law is something bad. The law is not something bad. It's just that when we have Mount Sinai, it'll kill us. But when you have Calvary's cross, it'll save us. So that's, that's the difference. But God's law doesn't change. His righteousness doesn't change. His righteous requirements don't change. His expectations don't change. The expectations of good behavior doesn't change. It's just that we cannot produce that good behavior with just the expression of Mount Sinai. We have to have the expression of Calvary's cross. Uh, that's why this, this chapter 3 is so, so uh, very, very powerful. I want to um, I want to look at verse uh, uh, twenty two. I think. Hang on, just a second here. What did I? All right. Let's let's go to no. I know that I had that right there. Well, I'll do this here. Let's look at um, let's look at verse twenty four. We look at 23, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, being justified, what's the next word? Freely. Freely means what? Now I know if you listen to the advertisers in the world, they say free, they don't really mean free, do they? But God means free. No reservations. That's right. When I teach Galatians, and Paul is battling with the some early Christians who having a hard time getting this straight. They were Jewish Christians and they'd spent their life going through all the ceremonies and all the feast days. There were seven Sabbaths given at the creation of the sanctuary and they spent their life going through uh, this. And so when they, they became Christians, but they just were absolutely sure that it was Christ plus circumcision if you wanted to be saved. In other words, it was Christ plus something. And I, I sum that up, I sum the Apostle Paul up in Galatians by saying, it is Christ, you're saved by faith alone in Christ, plus nothing. It's freely given to us. And the text goes on by His grace. Right, go, right, go right ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, sometimes we have a, you know, um, I've got some young people in here, so you forgive me. Um, but when you're when you're in those teenage years, there's a lot of things you don't quite grasp. Sometimes, sometimes they grasp it, and sometimes as adults, we don't do a good job. I've told the principals here, I told them both, I said, you know, you have rules here, like one of the big funny rules here, it's not a bad rule, it's a good rule for a good reason, is don't be chewing chewing gum at, at Great Lakes. Am I right? You went to Great, didn't you go to Great Lakes? Okay, I'm right. Now, or not in the ad building, okay, there's another one. Now, there's a reason for that, you know, because what do kids do when they, yeah, it was stuck under the desk, it was stuck whatever, or whatever. 
It has nothing to do with your acceptance with God. It has everything to do with making uh, the streetlights work. Am I right? You understand what I'm saying here? But sometimes kids can't get that separated. Uh, and sometimes some, no, we don't do a good job. But let me go back to this freely. We are justified freely by His... What's that next word? Grace. I want to talk about that. What is grace? In this context, grace means what God did for you and me at Calvary's cross totally and completely outside of you and me. How many were at Calvary's cross? Nobody in this room. This is God's act for us, uh, outside of us, and He did it out of His grace because He loved us. He just did it for us. And uh, so that is, that's what grace is, is something that it's our salvation, if you please, if we want it, accomplished for us totally and completely outside of us. Yes? No, the cross of the God's riches at Christ's expense. Yes, yes, that's good, that's excellent. Now here's where sometimes our, uh, some people get mixed up on this, and our Roman Catholic friends tend to get mixed up on this, although they've, they've used all language trying to make bridges with Protestants, but if you've got to read it carefully, you've got to read the details. Uh, they haven't changed. For them, it is God's grace. I'm not saying that God's grace doesn't pour into us too. Don't misunderstand me. But for them, your salvation is accomplished by God's grace pouring into you and then you somehow acting that out. The Protestant thinking on that is no. God's grace saved, uh, provides salvation for you totally and completely outside of yourself. So there is no mixture as far as salvation, as far as justification is concerned. Now, sanctification is the work of God's grace in my life. And by the way, you cannot have true justification, and I'll get into more of that later, you can't really have true justification without sanctification. In other words, uh, the, what God accomplishes for me, He also wants to do in me, but what He did for me is how I'm justified. What He wants to do in me is transform me. And, uh, and there's a big difference between the two, and yet they're very, very closely uh, related. So uh, we want to make sure that we, that we understand uh, verse, verse 24, being justified freely. If you look at number 19, looking at verse 24 in your lesson 3, we are said to be justified by a gift that's given to us by God's grace. What is the gift? And when did God's grace make it available to us? Underline the word. Um, when I get into chapter 5, uh, I want to be careful here. I don't, um, and, and I don't want to get into arguments with folk. But there are there's some who think that everybody is totally and completely justified at Calvary's cross and that the only way you can be lost is to reject God's grace. Um, we get into Romans chapter 5. I'll tell you why that approach is wrong. Sometimes it's semantics. But the truth is that the book of John says, as many as received Him, 
to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. So you're not automatically say there's not an eternal justification, but certainly justification is provided for us. I'll get more into that uh, as we get into chapter 5 just a little bit. And it's easy to see why people might could come to some of that conclusion uh, as well. All right, uh, so what is the gift? The gift is His only begotten Son, and when did God's grace make it available to us? It was, it was at the cross. Verse 25, we talked about that word perpetuation yesterday, and I'm not going to go back through that uh, today. I want to look down at verse uh, 25 and 26. You're still with me again. Uh, whom God sent forth as a perpetuation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. That word demonstrates important because in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness. Now here is a punchline that you find all through Scripture so that God can be just and the justifier. So that God can be just as the judge, and at the same time, show mercy. Now, that's a big question. How can you get both justice and mercy together? Because it appears in our world that the two cannot mix. I mean, if you stole the whatever and you go before the judge, the judge has to convict you and you're guilty, and he has to convict you that you stole X according to the law. There's a punishment for that. The judge is not just at liberty to say, well, you know, bless your little heart, you didn't mean to. In fact, the lawyers will tell you that not even ignorance is an excuse. No. Justice. Justice. But God is not only just. If God were only just, in fact, He could have, he could have destroyed the world and been just. But God is not just just. God is also merciful. But, and this is an amazing thing when you think about this. God neither gives up His justice. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't, um, what's the word I want, change it. That's why God's law can't be changed. If God could have changed His law and saved us, He would have done it rather than send His only begotten Son to Calvary's cross. But God doesn't do that because He cannot. Because it is him, His law is Himself. And let me give you another reason for that. Without the law of God, life would not exist. Uh, take this with uh, you know, the context. Context. Life is organization. When your body ceases to be organized, whether it's old age that gets us or whether it's some kind of disease or whatever, what happens to life? Dies. It's law that makes organization possible. So God created, and God is Himself, and His law reflects His character. So when he made the law, it wasn't, oh, you know, I just kind of think I like that one that says, uh, honor your father and mother. I, I mean, I'm just partial to that. I'm, I'm just going to put that one in. No. That, every one of those Ten Commandments 
is absolutely essential for the existence of life. So if you change it, what do you get? Death. God cannot change Himself. He not, cannot change His justice. Why, why does God have such anger at sin? Yeah. Uh, any of you ever spent, what would you say? Yes. Yes. And that always ends in death. You're a nurse, so you know. She's a very good nurse, by the way. Um, uh, let, me, let me just uh, pack this in just a little bit more here. If you don't have organization, what do you have? Exactly. Chaos always produces. How many like to live in chaos? Yeah. No, you want it to be organized. Organized in order to be preserved life and order and all of those things. So that's, that, that's why God can't change his teeth. So he's going to be just. Oh, here's the point I wanted to get to. And I want to come back to that point. Why does God hate sin so much? Okay, men, I'm going to talk to you. How many fathers do I have in here? Okay. Okay, listen up, guys. you got a one-year-old playing in a yard, and you see a rattlesnake crawl toward that one-year-old. Tell me what you're going to do. Now, I'll tell you what you better not be doing. You better not say, Oh... Have mercy on that snake. I don't want to hurt the snake. No. If you're the father I think you are, if you're the man I think you are, you're going to kill that thing with anything you can get your hands on, and you're going to kill it fast. Why? Well, the women will tell you if you can't figure that fair. I think you got it figured out. we got it figured out, don't we, guys? we got it figured out. Yeah, no. It's it, your anger toward the snake is in proportion to the love you have for your daughter or your son. Am I right? Because that snake is a threat to that life. And so you're going to kill that thing. That's why God hates sin. Let me tell you, God's reaction to sin is predictable. Just like that father, a normal good father's behavior is predictable when that snake crosses toward his toddler. It's predictable. Because what sin does is crawls into God's nursery and starts to destroy his children. He has a right to be angry. It's a righteous indignation. It's not the arbitrary, sinful kinds of anger that we see expressed in this world. We're not talking about that kind of thing. We're talking about, that's why I use the word judicial anger or judicial wrath because God is going to protect, if He's God at all, and He is, He's going to protect life. 
But at the same time, God is merciful. Now let me really confuse you a little bit. The problem is that God's children all have snakes in their hearts. So what God wants to do is, can He exhibit His mercy in a way to deliver us from His justice? Now this is not merely a legal transaction. There actually has to be a change in Jay Gallimore. Am I right? He's not only got to forgive my sins, he's got to transform me so I'm now in harmony with the rest of the universe. So I can live. That's what this is all about. That's why we can't just have the forgiveness of our sins. We must have the forgiveness of our sins. But we also must have the transformation of our characters in order to be in harmony with the God who loves us. And that is good news. And that's what our God does. Now you find this theme all the way through Scripture. This just and the, uh, he's just and the justifier of the sinner. You hear God say, justice and mercy. You'll hear those things, two things together. You hear him say, loving kindness and truth. So as Christians, we always want to keep loving kindness and truth together, never apart. We always want to keep justice and mercy together. Now I'm going to read you my little, I promised I'd do this yesterday, my little, I probably shouldn't take time to do this, but I'm going to do it. And uh, I, I, I wrote this little uh, piece here, and I want to share it because it kind of demonstrates, I think, um, what I'm trying to say here, not that you're not getting it, I'm sure that you are, but we have to sometimes understand Okay, here we go. In our media culture, competition between men and women is encouraged and cheered on. Yes, each gender has created distinct each gender was created distinct and special by the creator's hand. Yet he created them for harmony, not rivalry. It was never God's plan for husbands and wives or men and women to be in rivalry with one another. That was my comment. Extra. Nevertheless, above this planet so filled with strife and commotion still stands the Creator's declaration, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. In the plan of salvation, God also married two powers. Like husband and wife, the law and the gospel are uniquely different, yet the Savior has united them in harmony to save the world. Naturally, Satan, the father of rivalry, has conspired to divorce what God has joined together. The report of their divorce, law and grace, has created lots of stress among the children of father law and mother gospel. In the same way children are confused and torn between two separated parents, so misinformed Christians become confused trying to figure out how to be loyal to both. 
These confused Christians ask, why is Father Law so concerned about what I do? What does Mother Gospel mean when she says, I'm free from Father Law? Or is Father Law right when he says, I must obey all his commandments? Sometimes the stress gets so bad that the children think they have to choose between the two. Then, of course, there are fights between the children that defend Father Law and those that defend Gospel Mother, Mother Gospel. But all of this distress is unnecessary. You see, Father Law and Mother Gospel, contrary to the propaganda, have never, ever been divorced. In fact, just the opposite is true. They love each other deeply and passionately. The divorce rumor is a lie from the father of lies. You see, Mother Gospel knows that Father Law is the perfect man. He's so strong, faithful and true. Unselfish love is the foundation of his wisdom. And she rests secure and contented in his love. He's never arbitrary or fickle. He's always trustworthy and honorable. You see, no one loves life like Mother Gospel, and she knows what most don't. Father Law doesn't just make up the rules. His commands are as essential to life as water. Without His commandments, life could not exist. There is nothing about Him she does not absolutely admire. He inspires her love like no other. His understanding fills her with admiration and respect. Her love for Him is unquestionable, unchangeable, and limitless. To be sure, theirs is a love story made in heaven. To be sure, Father Law knows that in certain circumstances, His perfect laws have limits. While His laws are the laws of life and happiness, he has no way to rescue the rebels who have sinned against His law of love. Alone, He can only execute justice. Once a human being sins, then judgment and removal is the only way he has of keeping the universe clean and preserved. Rebellion, if allowed to stand, will bring disorganization and death to the whole universe. So you can see why Father Law must insist on justice, yet he too longs to save the rebellious. So when he saw Mother Gospel for the first time, it was love at first sight. In his fondest imaginations, he'd never imagined a woman so glorious. He was overwhelmed by the sheer loveliness of her grace. Her grace had marvelous power. On one hand, she could satisfy the broken law. At the same time, she could restore a repentant sinner to the harmony with the laws of life. Though very different from himself, he noticed several things they had in common. They were both passionate about life. Both loved harmony and beauty. Both hated death. Both embraced selfish love that was the foundation of law, mercy, and life itself. She was so amazing. What grace. He knew that herself, that her self-sacrificing nature was the essence of life itself. With his heart brimming with love, he takes her hand and draws her wisdom and power to himself. He forever wants to hold her in his embrace. So you see Father Law and Mother Gospel have their arms around each other as they work for our salvation. She has abilities he didn't and he has abilities she didn't. Together they can accomplish the impossible. But only together.
So how does Father Law and Mother Gospel work together to save sinners? First, Father Law convicts the sinners of his sin and sins confronts him with the consequences. Tough love. Sinners overwhelmed. First, he feels the awfulness of his guilt. Next, he feels the terribleness of his penalty. And then he longs to escape his sinfulness and be restored to Father Law's approval and esteem. When Father Law hears that cry, his frown is replaced with a smile. Without saying a word, he simply points to his glorious wife, Mother Gospel. She quickly pulls the weeping sinner child under her wings. Together, Father Law and Mother Gospel do the impossible. With mysterious spiritual power, they adopt this child and give him a new spiritual conception. The law of life is there because Father Law is the Father. And the grace and forgiveness of God is there because Mother Gospel is the Mother. Now, in pain and suffering poured out on Calvary's cross, Mother Gospel gives a spiritual birth to the new creature. Christian child, previously sinner child, is born in freedom from the law's penalty and curse. He's been for, born free to live the laws of life. He grows healthy and happy as long as he trusts his mother. As long as he's under the wings of her grace, he's safe. Under those wings, he sometimes stumbles, but Mother Grace picks him up. Sometimes the old way of life comes back to haunt him, but Mother Gospel kisses away his tears. Sometimes doubt and fear sweep over him, but the songs of Mother Gospel calms and reassures him of his eternal home. As long as he trusts Mother Gospel, he's safe. But if he loses faith in her, he has everything to fear. Mother Gospel teaches Christian child that while Father Law can be fearful to someone outside of grace, he has nothing to fear because he's under her grace. So we leave the scene of this new family. There's Mother Gospel, her wings of grace spread over Christian child. They're sitting at the feet of Father Law while he teaches Christian child the way of life. Christian child is amazed at the wisdom of Father Law. He wonders how he could have ever been afraid of such wisdom. Mother Gospel has the most glorious look of serenity as she watches the scene. Occasionally, Father Law glances at Mother Gospel. In a flash of that eye, contact has expressed the passion of unselfish love that is both supremely and marvelously divine. I hope that was a little bit helpful. But it gives you kind of the picture of what the book of Romans is expressing here. Uh, it was some years ago, but uh, I'll... I'll uh, I mean, you read a lot of things you forget. Most of you haven't read it. So I just wanted to give a little picture of that here this morning. All right, verse, let's look at verse 27. Where is boasting then it is excluded by what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the law. The word is not against the law. Justified apart from the law because of Calvary's cross. And... Um, and the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is only one, there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do, that would be hard for the Jewish people of that day to accept that. Early Christians wrestled with that. And then he comes down to this punchline. Do we then make void the law through faith? 
Certainly not. And I praise the Lord that he finished that sentence by saying, on the contrary, we what? We established the law. See, one of the accusations the Apostle Paul had against him was, hey, preacher Paul, you're preaching all this stuff and telling people that they're saved by faith and they're saved by grace. They're just going to go out here and be lawless. They think you've given them a license to sin. He said, that's not true. In fact, he said, what we've done is established the law. So question and answer for you. How does grace establish the law? Okay, that's okay. It's not what I'm looking for. You're very, very close. That, that, that's, a, that's a good answer. When I look at that and I think about God's grace for me in my wretched condition. Mm-hmm. I, I want to cry out for the power from above to mm. obey that law and bring myself in the power. You know, that I can be brought into harmony with <clears throat> Okay, let me ask you. Yes. So the fact that Jesus can die on the cross, that is the law. I mean, we're just Here, let me let me come back to her answer just a little bit. You want to say your answer again? Okay. Now I'm I'm going to put a little bit of uh, extra on top of that because so we can get that here because that's that's at the heart of it. The the uh, opponents of the apostle Paul says you just give these people a license to sin. You know, you you've given them grace; they can just go do whatever they want to do. But here's the deal: if if, if, if it's just me and the law, I'm already a sinner and it's going to do what to me? And it's not going to get established, is it? It may be established there, but it's not established in me. And we need this thing established among sinners. So the only way the law of God will get established is if I have a conversion experience and I accept by faith the Lord Jesus who comes into my life. He's the living law. He changes my heart puts me in harmony with Him, and now I am in harmony with the law, and the law of God is established where? In my heart. So, grace doesn't make void the law of God. Grace not only leaves the law of God intact, but it also establishes the law of God in my heart by the living Christ, and now I, who was once a sinner, have now established the law of God. So instead of the law, of, instead of grace giving me license to sin, it has empowered me to become obedient and in harmony with the law of God. Does that make sense? Did I say it? That's right. Grace empowers. And that's a powerful text that we do not make void the law of God, but we establish the law. All right. Please. Yes. Say that again. If you love me, keep my commandment. All right. So 
That's saying, that's saying it in another way, isn't it? Because you can't keep the commandments of God without the love of Jesus. So, well, well said. Okay, let's, um, let's hurry on here. And we'll, we will leave chapter 3, I think, and we will move on to chapter 4. And Paul now is going to try to... He's like a, a lawyer. He's saying, now I'm going to give you Exhibit A. And Exhibit A is Abraham. And uh, I want to go down to verse 3 of chapter 4. Verse 3 of chapter 4. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So the question here is, uh, in, in verse 3, there are three key words here in this verse. What are they? Three key words. Yes, yes. Credited, believed, and righteousness. Now, that word credit is a, is a real important word. I'm going to uh, take through. My, my wife's a, a CPA, so I've lived with uh, a CPA for a long time. I think I know a little bit about it, just a little bit. I, don't ask me to be your CPA. People come and ask me for tax questions. I say, you're talking to the wrong person. Go talk to her. But there are some basic things I've got, I got down. Now, she has, she has a degree in elementary ed, too. She, she loves kids' stuff. So anyway, that's a unique combination. Um, but uh, I, I've got this figured out. I've got it figured out. If, I, if you start, when you open a bank account, how much money do you have in your bank account? Zero. Zero. You, know, you open it, and then at some point, you have to do something about it to change the zero. Am I right? Okay, so you have to put money in there. Um, Start to give another illustration from John Lennox, but I'll forbear because that'll get you going another way. But uh, at, at any rate, so you have to put money. It has to be credited to your account. Now, sin, just think about your life as a bank account for just a moment. Just think about that for a moment. Uh, how much are you born with? Negative balance. We're not born with a negative balance because we don't believe in original sin. In other words, we're suffering the effects of sin when we're born, but you're not guilty for Adam's sin. Okay? So, let's say that you're born with zero, just for sake of argument. By the way, be careful with illustrations. You know, you don't want to push them too far, but I just want to get the point across here. Um, so let's say that you, you live your life and so forth, and, and pretty soon you don't have just zero in there. You have a negative balance. Do we know what negative balance means? Yeah, many, many years ago, my wife and I had a... Uh, they came out with this bank account. They said, never worry. And we didn't have a problem with bad checks anyway because my wife always watched over that. They said, we'll just automatically give you a, a line of credit. And that's in you. So you, if you write, you can, but you'll have debt when you do that. Well, it doesn't take very long to find out that your bank account is in down here. So you've got real problems. 
you're not just at zero, you're in debt. Now at Calvary's cross, what did Jesus do? Where did He bring the bank account to? To zero. That's correct. He forgave your past sins. Am I right? But that's not enough to live on. You can't live on zero. Am I right? So what Jesus did for you and me is He deposited His own righteousness in our account. How about that? Can you live with that? Yeah, you can live with that. Deposit. So Calvary's cross not only wipes out our debt, but He puts eternal amount of money in there so you can live forever. And so if, as you listen to this thing about Abraham credit is, is credit of righteousness. Okay, let me let me um, go down just uh, uh, a little bit, little bit more here. Let's look at verse five. But to him who does not work but believes on him, and that really that work you have to understand it in the context. If people take stuff out of context, um, by the way, sometimes we we get too my my what's the word I want uh, microscopic in some of these things. But to him who does not work but believes on him doesn't mean that he's not obedient. It means that he doesn't believe that he's saved by his own works. To him who does not work but believes on Christ, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. Let me put it this way. His faith in Christ is accounted as righteousness because Christ comes into his life, and when Christ comes into his life, he brings all his righteousness with him. And then uh, we go down through uh, David there. Look at verse 8. This is a very blessed one. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute or account uh, sin. And that's a wonderful thing. Paul, in verse 5, does Paul describe a lawbreaker when he says, but the one who does not work? And the answer to that is no. He simply means one who does not trust himself, but trusts Jesus uh, for salvation. Uh, I want to look at verse 13. I'm kind of moving down through here just a little bit. Some of that you can work through. Um, but verse 13 says, For the promise that he, Abraham, would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law. In other words, God did not say to Abraham, Abraham, I'm giving you this promise. I'm going to give you this world and to your heirs if you will obey me. When you obey me, then I'll give it to you. Because Abraham was already dead in the water. It's not going to happen because it couldn't happen. He couldn't... Abraham, when that promise was made to him, he, there was nothing he could do to perform to do that because he's already in trouble. So Paul argues that God did not give the promise to Abraham based on Abraham's obedience, but He gave the promise to Abraham if Abraham would have faith in Him. 
You with me? Now, faith in Christ is not a theory. Faith in Christ brings a reality to our lives. It brings the living Christ into our life. And so uh, that's, that's why that is, that is so, so wonderfully powerful. Um, the answer I put there, God promised Abraham his descendants they would inherit the world. It's number 10, verse 13. Why was it impossible for God to grant the promise based on works of the law, approach to righteousness? And here's the answer I put down in mind, and that is the new world would be filled with the meek. Meekness comes when there's a new heart. And a new heart can only come by, come on, somebody finish it. By faith in Christ. It's the only place you can get that new heart. And so that's why I couldn't. It was impossible. All right, verse 15, uh, 16 says um, that the law brings wrath. And I've already talked about that uh, just Let me just read 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of faith of the Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul says Abraham was saved by faith, and everybody that is saved by faith is going to be the children of Abraham. Isn't that good news? The good news is that if you're in Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's not about your ethnicity that makes you a child of Abraham. It's your faith that makes you a child of Abraham. And that... Yeah, don't let, let me go right back to what you just quoted. Faith without works is so it was never faith to start with. Now listen to me carefully. If you have true faith in Christ, it will always, every time, produce good works in your life. But it is faith alone. So if they teach that kind of faith, that you can have faith and you can be saved, but it doesn't matter what you do, what kind of faith is that? It's dead faith. Dead faith cannot save you. Only true faith can save you. But it, yeah, but it's the faith in Christ that produces. When He comes to my life, He will produce good works. But those works are not meritorious to me. In other words, I'm saved because of what Jesus did for me outside of me on Calvary's cross. By virtue of what He did for me outside of me on Calvary's cross, and I put my faith in Him, He now literally comes into my heart. And His, His presence in my life, in my mind, in my affections, His presence produces in me good works. But those works are not offered up and said, look, see those good works, how 
You, you, you could say J now because of, no, no. That's just the result. That's just the fruit. But it's not notorious. Uh, Have I got that word right? Yeah, yeah. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make you, uh, it's not what saves you. What saves you is what Christ did for you on Calvary's cross. And it is His presence in your life by your living faith that produces good works. And God looks at the good works and He says, now that makes me happy. But He doesn't say, that atones for your sins. Follow me? He says, now that makes me happy because now Jay's in harmony with the universe. But that's not what saved Jay. What saved him was the death of Christ on Calvary's cross. Because Christ alone could pay the penalty. All right, good. Yes, you had a question? Well, because God, God is going to give you a reward. But that reward is not... It has nothing to do with your salvation. Let me put it another way. When you give your heart to Christ, you become His child. If you have a child, and that child does good things, does that make you happy? But does that child do good things to become your child? You hope he does good things because he is your child, and he loves you, or she loves you. And, and there is the difference. That's why we, we want to do good works and do the right thing because God is our Father. Jesus is our elder brother. And they went to a big, powerful, magnificent effort to make me truly their child. So I never keep God's law to become his child or to win his approval because I have already been accepted in the beloved. But I obey because I love Him. And it's perfect love that casts out what? Now, if I lose my love, God doesn't force Himself on me. So if I decide I don't want to love Him anymore, He may be patient and long-suffering. And long-suffering. He doesn't let go easily. But if I insist that I'm not going to love him anymore and I don't want him to be my parent anymore and I don't want him to be my father anymore and I want out of the adoption, he will let you go. And then there's fear again when there didn't have to be. Are you with me? Following me? You have any questions on that? If you have a question, raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, it's well said. When Jesus comes into my heart and your heart, one of my prayers is, Lord, make me willing to be willing. Give me the will to do what's right and good because I don't have that power in my own self. He, what sin has done to us, 
We're not, we're not guilty, as some teach. We're not guilty for Adam's sin. You, the, the sins of the children are not charged to the fathers or the fathers to the children. God doesn't do that. He doesn't say, okay, Adam was your father, now you're guilty for Adam's sin. No. But let me tell you what it has done to us. It has hurt us in our propensities, for lack of a better terminology, to our leanings. So that when I'm born, my genes are epigenetics or whatever you want to call that's been a part of my life and my grandfather, my grandmother, and on back and on back and all the ancestors you have. By the way, you have a lot of ancestors. You go back just a little ways. It goes like this and then eventually gets like this called just to Adam and Eve. But it spreads out like this, you know. Um, and so you, you, you look back over your ancestors and you may have inherited uh, a propensity from, you know, uh, five grandmothers back or five grandfathers back. It just that gene shows up there because it was damaged. So what 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 Adam did was he polluted the whole genes, our genes, so that we have this bent to selfishness. But you're not a sinner till you sin. Now, some people would debate me on that, and I would say, well, just be quiet till I can get to Romans chapter 5. There is another dynamic there. There's sinfulness and there's sinner. And, 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 and we'll get to that, that dynamic. The clock keeps running on us, doesn't it? All right. Um, let, me, uh, let me look at... Um, I, okay, I've got, to get, I've got to look at verse 20 before I get out of chapter 4. There's other things here that I think you can, you can do well with. But let me, look at verse, let me look at verse 20. Talking about Abraham. He, did, he talks about his weaknesses and so forth. By the way, was Abraham a perfect man? I said, Lord. Tell me what the deal is, Lord. Abraham lies about his wife twice. I said, Lord, why didn't you spank him? Good. So he didn't do it the second time. Lord didn't answer me a word. That's his business, am I right? Yeah. I wasn't there. Jay, you're not responsible for Abraham. I happen to be. She said he did spank me the first time and it didn't help. <laughs> I said, Lord, he was not being very good and you still rescued him. How many times has God rescued us when we weren't doing so good? Now, I wouldn't take that for granted. Remember, grace is not a license to sin. It should bring us to repentance, but all of us have had those times in our life when we said, Lord, I wasn't doing too good. But thank you for delivering me when I didn't deserve it. But listen to this. Verse 20, But he did not waver at the promise of God. I said, waver, Lord. Twice lied about his wife. And I don't even understand that man's thinking about that lovely wife he had. I mean, he's trying to save his own life at the sacrifice of her purity. And I... <laughs> It always bugged you too. 
He said, where was this Abraham that would stand up and say, you better not touch that woman, that's my wife. <laughs> Instead, he was saying, have mercy on me, my dear wife. Don't get me killed. <laughs> It'd be better for you. No, I better not go there. Anyway, <laughs> he did not waver because when the whole situation was done, Abraham stood firm. Now, let me tell you something else. I don't know that I could pass the test he passed. It wasn't that God didn't test him after that. When God says to him, Abraham, take your son. And then God bored in. He just, he just pushed it in. Your only son, Isaac. And Abraham passed that test. He showed what absolute trust he had in God. At that point in his life, absolute trust in God's love. Ellen White says about Abraham that he concluded to himself, I'm going to do this because God's told me to do it because I believe that God could resurrect Isaac from the dead. He couldn't understand why God would ask him to do it, but God must be able and God's love was not questioned, and so he did it. So when the test finally comes, Abraham doesn't waver. Listen, listen to this. I ask people, you want to strengthen your faith? How many want to strengthen your faith? Here's the key right here. Here it is. He did not waver at the promise of God, verse 20, through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving what? Glory to God. The more thankful you are, the more you remember God's goodness, the more times you say, God, thank you for doing that. Thank you for doing that. I remember when you did that. Thank you, Lord God. I give you my worship. I give you my thanksgiving. Be specific in your thanksgiving. The more you do that, the greater and stronger your faith will become. You want stronger faith? Give glory to God. I like verse 21, being fully convinced that what he, God, had promised he was able to perform. God said, Isaac is the inheritance, he's the promised son. Now God turns around and says, sacrifice Isaac. Abraham says to himself, all right, God, I am going to do it because I'm fully convinced that the promise you made about Isaac you're able to perform no matter what. That's faith. That's powerful faith. And therefore, verse 22, it what? What was the it? His faith. In who? His faith in God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. I love verse 23. Now, it was not written for his sake alone. I want to say hallelujah to that. That it was imputed to him, but also verse 24, for us, you put your name in there. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised our Jesus, uh, up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered. Now, get, get a load of this next verse who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of their justification. Whoa, 
help me out with this. How many of you have ever sang the song, Jesus paid it all? Don't you love that song? I love that song. Jesus paid it all on Calvary's cross. But I want to tell you, listen to me carefully, that Jesus' death alone was not enough. His death alone might forgive us of our sins, but it cannot fix us. You have to have His resurrection. Listen carefully. We are saved by the living Christ. We do not serve a dead Christ. We do not serve a dead Christ who simply forgave our past sins. We serve a living Christ who not only can wipe out our sins, but can empower us and present us before His Father perfect. That's why that is such a powerful text. I want to read it again because the whole next chapter is predicated on it. Verse 25, Who was delivered up because of our sins, crucified, and was raised or resurrected because of our justification. It's the two together that transforms us and makes us new creatures in Christ. Now the next word in, in chapter 5, verse 1, is the word what? Therefore means because of verse 25. So because of verse 25, I'm going to tell you the rest of this part, he's saying. Therefore, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. So we have this, we have this justification. You accept Christ as your personal Savior, you have this wonderful fact that you are at peace with God. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be at peace with God? People who are not at peace with God are miserable. But look at verse 3. No, 2. Through whom? Who's the whom? Jesus. We also have access by faith into this grace in which we what? We stand. I, I like the terminology. He says we have access through faith. So if I believe in Jesus as my Savior, that opens the door, and now I have access to His grace, and it's in that grace that I stand. Let me give you an illustration. Some years ago, my wife and I decided we wanted to move out in the country. And so um, we started looking around for a house out in the country. And uh, the house that we had still had a mortgage on it, of course. And so in order to buy the new house, you're going to have to get a mortgage on that. You with me? And um, 
So, at, you know, I just didn't have the money to just go write a check for the new property. I, I needed somewhere along the line, I needed to sell this in order to be able to qualify and get a mortgage over here. Now, there might have been somebody that would take a chance on me and give me a bridge loan. I've been through that before. And I didn't want to do that again. It's very expensive and it's, uh, the paperwork was terrible and so forth. So, but we decided we wanted to do this. So we started looking around and uh, we had a friend who's now passed away. He's not a Seventh-day Adventist. And, um, and he found out that we were going to do that. And he just told us one day, he says, don't worry about it. He says, buy the house you want. I'll write the check. And uh, you can pay me back when you sell your other house. I said, really? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And we were going to pay him interest, of course. It was all above board. It wasn't anything. And uh, I said, well, that, that sure makes life a lot easier. That's great. You know, thank you so much. So we found the house and we bought it and it came time to close. Now I have faith in my friend. I have faith in my friend because I wouldn't have faith in just anybody, but I knew that he could perform. Can Jesus perform? Can he perform? If he tells you he'll write you a check, can he write the check? If he tells you, I can fix your heart, can he fix your heart? Yeah. He can perform. I knew this man could perform. So we come to closing. Anybody realtors in here? Any realtors in here? No? Okay. Well, if I did, I'd call them to verify what I'm going to say. Realtors understand closing. I mean, that's the closings where they get paid, everybody gets paid, and all that kind of good thing. So we came to closing. And so the realtor was there, and the people who were buying the house was from there, and so forth. So we sit down. The realtor looks around. He knows we have not taken a mortgage out on this new house, so there's no... And he kind of looks around, leans over to me, and he says, Who's that guy? And I leaned back, and I said, Without him, there's no deal. <laughs> He said, who is he? And I told him his name. He says, well, why'd you tell me that to start with? I wouldn't have worried about a thing. <laughs> why? Because even the realtor knew he could perform. He performed that day. And my wife and I stood in a new house, not new, new, new to us, in this country house because of our friend's grace. I stand in God's grace. Now this is not an on and off again relationship. When God adopts you as His child, He really means it. He's not playing games. When He signs the adoption papers, He meant every word put on that. So I'm standing in His grace. Now does that mean that I'm always going to perform perfectly? But it does mean that He has the power to pick me up, dust me off, 
and get me set back on the straight and narrow. And He also has the power to change my heart, to bring repentance, and to give me a willingness to be willing. He does all kinds of things for me, doesn't He? The one thing that God will not tolerate forever is rebellion. I cannot continue to stand in God's grace if I insist and persist, persist on rebellion. Rebellion at some point, hung on to long enough, will undo everything that He's done for me. Thank God for His grace. Thank God that we stand in His grace. Thank God that it's not an on and off again relationship every time I turn around it's on or off. But thank God that He not only supplies the power, but He never takes away your choice. John 1, Go right ahead. That's the access. Sons and daughters the most high God. Yeah, amen. That the faith, Abraham, the prophet, forsaking all, I take him. That's my part. Amen. Amen. My part is, Jesus, I want you and I trust you. <laughs> and I've got to have you. All right. Then verse 3, 4, and 5 talk about difficulties and challenges that God takes us through. Verse 4 talks about perseverance and character. Why does God let us go through trials and difficulties and challenges? He's developing our character. He's doing something for us. I don't like pain and suffering any more than anybody else. Verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Um, i got just about four more minutes, and tomorrow I want to get, I want to get into this uh, Adam and second Adam part. But let me finish here, verses 6 to 11, in the next few minutes. Chapter 5, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now that, that's grace again. He didn't die for us when we were godly. He didn't die for us. By the way, uh, I tell people, I say, you know, if people live together without the benefit of a marriage, they're a bunch of legalists. You with me on this? Uh, that's kind of the popular thing to do in a lot of people. By the way, it's not just young people. It's baby boomers, all kinds of people living together without the benefit of a marriage. But they're legalists. And, here, and here's why they're legalists. Because they say to someone, they say, you know, if you perform well, if you perform well, we'll st uh, maybe, I'll, maybe if I get enough good performers before we die, I'll make it illegal. But marriage is based on faith and the principle of love. So that when you, when you marry somebody, you're saying, you know, I want you to know that I, I choose to love you for better or for 
for richer or for, and you know the drill. I choose to love you. That's principled love. And I trust you. I trust that we're going to have a good life together and that we're going to try to perform to make each other happy. That's faith, by the way. And uh, if it's based on good, good, solid things, it turns out to be very, very happy. It's only when that gets broken that um, there's problems. So the grace of God, Christ died for us when we were still ungodly so that He might offer us the security of His love. Verse 7, For scarcely a righteous man will die, yet for perhaps a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace. You haven't performed. You haven't earned anything. You haven't even said, I want you, God. He just performs and provides that grace so that we can have that grace um, by His power. Now, look at verse 9. Much more then, having been justified by His blood, set right if you please. And by the way, let me stop right there. Why did it take the blood of Christ? Why is that so important? You know, some people make fun of Christians. We sing that song, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. They say, look how gross that is. That's terrible. But we love the song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And what happens when we plunge beneath that flood? We lose all our guilty stains. Why was it the shedding of Christ's blood? Exactly right. The life is in the blood. That's what the Bible says. Now we have some nurses in here who, maybe some doctors too, I don't know. Yeah, we do have a doctor right here. Um, if the blood, if the blood doesn't, is the blood isn't right, your whole body is in trouble. One of the first things you do, they go into your emergency rooms, they take your the blood, and they run that blood sample down to the lab, and they want to see what's going on because the blood tells them. But there's life in the blood. So the, the blood of Christ represents the life of Christ. All right. Um, much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Now, that is a powerful thing to end on. I'd like to end on the next verse, but let me just let me just sink this home. If when we were enemies, Christ died and wiped out, you know, made it possible for our sins to be forgiven, paid for our sins. Now listen to the hope of this. If he did that when we were enemies, how much more can he do for us? When we become His children, when we are reconciled, how much more if He could do that when we were enemies? Think of what He can do for us when we are His friends. Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you.
for loving us so much. You never give up your justice. You never give up your mercy. And all through eternity, we will stand before you with worshiping hearts. How great you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.